Well, it is a joy to be with you all again, hopefully for the last time for a long time, right? It's wonderful to, to see that you uh, have Pastor Marino here. And, uh, in the meantime, though, I'm more than happy to be here. We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark today, Mark chapter 9, uh, looking at the Transfiguration account. Uh, so while we're in the Gospel of Mark, uh, bear in mind that we're going to be skipping around a little bit, making reference to the other Gospels, especially Luke, uh, because they also have transfiguration accounts, and uh, they fill in some helpful details uh, in Mark's narrative, which was probably the first one written. Uh, so let's turn to Mark chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse 1. Jesus is speaking, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it, uh, and how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it was written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this word of yours. We are grateful for the glory of Christ which we see. And we pray that we would uh, strive to attain that glory. That as victors in him, we would be willing to suffer many things because of what's revealed in your word here. In your son's name, amen. I have a simple question for you this morning. Do you believe that Jesus reigns? Let me clarify what I mean in this question by telling you what I don't mean. What I don't mean is, do you believe the doctrine that Jesus reigns? If you're here on a Sunday morning in a Presbyterian church, the chances are that you believe the doctrine that Jesus reigns, right? All Christians confess that doctrine, that Jesus is Lord of all creation, No, rather, what I wonder this morning is whether you believe that right now, as we stand and sit here, Jesus Christ is seated on his throne in heaven. Do you believe that he not only allows, but actually ordains whatsoever comes to pass, as the confession puts it? Or do you struggle to reconcile in your own mind and heart how that could be the case, how Jesus could be reigning even now, and yet the world and our own lives could be filled with so much turmoil And suffering. How can Jesus truly be in charge, in other words, when there's so much 
pain and evil and suffering in our lives. Our time is one of hopelessness, isn't it? I apologize, but I'm going to talk philosophy for a minute. About a hundred years ago, theologians were preoccupied with writing against the philosophy of people like Friedrich Nietzsche, right? the great atheist theologian, or philosopher rather. Now, Nietzsche, what was his whole deal? Well, he basically said that Christianity itself, in the time of the Enlightenment, right, in the 1700s mainly, had moved away from the idea that there's something supernatural, right? The Enlightenment had given us this faith in a material world, a closed system, that the only things that are are that which is provable empirically by science, that we can test, touch, see, feel. And so they said there's no room for a spiritual realm. There's no room for something transcendent or otherworldly. The only things that are are the material And so Nietzsche really was not an original thinker. He just said, if that's the case, we need to carry that line of thought through to its logical conclusion. And so he said, uh, if we're going to replace the mythological with the material, if we're going to replace the providential with the pragmatic, there's no more grounds for morality, is there? If there's no God in whom our morals are grounded, if his character is not a thing that exists, then what's tethering us to the morality and the ideas of morality that Western civilization had been grounded in for so many centuries. God is dead and we have killed him, he says. So we should reject that morality in favor of the pursuit of power, right? And Nietzsche comes up with this idea of the ubermensch, the superhuman, this person who has developed into a prime physical and genetic and even mental specimen capable of dominating anyone lesser than him. And we all know how that pursuit ended in the atrocities of Nazi Germany and the Second World War. But in the decades since the Holocaust, society has had to come to grips with the fact that in a godless society without even Nietzsche's ubermensch, right, because that's no longer valid, in, in a godless society which doesn't even have that ideal of a superhuman or a prime person to look at, We have no hope at all. All that there is is our current state. It's a hopeless society in which we live. At least, at least in the day of Nietzsche, there was something better than this current state of existence to which we could look forward as humans. But now in the postmodern society, we remain largely godless, but we don't even have the godless hope to hang on to. And so our time is one of true hopelessness. Power means nothing. Suffering means nothing. The idea, even, of hope, it rings hollow. When was the last time you heard the world speak of hope in a meaningful way, as something lasting? And as Christians, we live in that society. We, we hear its music and we read its books. We watch its shows. Hopelessness is in the air that we breathe, and it's a heavy air like that swampy summer Florida air that fills your lungs and it actually drags you down instead of invigorating you. But in the passage we just read, we find a blessed and a welcome relief. This passage gives us a glimpse actually into the throne room of heaven. It gives us a sneak peek at the glory that is our hope as Christians. 
And it gives us something of an explanation for this plaguing problem of the continuing presence of evil and suffering alongside the reign of Christ as we confess it. So we'll look at this text this morning in three segments and under three headings. First, we'll consider the glory of Christ. And second, his authority. And then finally, we'll spend some time thinking about what he says about his own suffering and what it means for ours. So first, the glory of Christ. Mark's account of the transfiguration of Jesus constitutes an important part of his gospel's plot line. It's a high point in the narrative. Just as in Matthew and Luke, where the story is also told, Mark recounts this episode in terms that are actually dripping, as one commentator puts it, with extensive and unambiguous references to the Old Testament. He's pointing his readers back in this story, in other words, to the writings of Moses and the prophets, that we might understand the full magnitude of what took place on the Mount of Transfiguration. Just think about some of the imagery in play here, friends. Uh, Jesus leads three chosen disciples up to the top of a mountain, just as Moses had brought three chosen disciples up to the top of Sinai when he had gone to receive the law. There's the thick cloud and the booming voice like on Sinai. They even go up on the sixth day. And Matthew tells us that Jesus' face shone just like Moses. Clearly, Mark here is drawing some parallels between what's happening with Jesus and what's happened with Moses. And then, as if there were any doubt, Moses himself shows up along with Elijah. And you might remember that Elijah is, we could say, a mountain man. He had another mountaintop experience, didn't he? Similar, very similar to Moses's when he was despairing and God brought him to the top of a mountain. And he, God, God demonstrated his power to Elijah, first with a great wind and then an earthquake and then a fire. And then God spoke to him, even as he had spoken to Moses. And Elijah hid his face with his cloak, even as Moses had hidden the cleft of a rock. It's a remarkably similar story. So Moses and Elijah here form sort of a representative party, two of the three great Old Testament patriarchs and fathers of Israel, along with who? Well, Abraham, we would say. And Abraham also had quite the experience on top of a mountain. You remember that he was directed to the top of Mount Moriah to sacrifice his son Isaac. And what happened there? Well, God spoke to him, didn't he, as he was about to sacrifice his beloved son So as we read this passage, we should be getting Old Testament deja vu. The imagery is all over. It's as if this famous Old Testament scene is just being reenacted here on the top of the Mount of of Transfiguration. It repeats itself not only in the lives of these Old Testament figures, uh, but now it's being repeated in the life of this man, Jesus of Nazareth. But he's not just Jesus of Nazareth, just a man. Now, is he? Well, he's more than that, as the disciples can see very plainly. While they're asleep, Luke tells us, exhausted from their hike, Jesus' face is changed. That's what transfigured means. And his dusty clothes become brilliant, otherworldly white. And he's joined by Moses and Elijah. And when the disciples wake up, they witness a Jesus who no longer looks like an ordinary man. He looks like a man, but not an ordinary man. That is to say, he's more than just a man. He is shining with glory. It's that glory which he laid aside when he took on human flesh. 
And it's now radiating from him as he stands there on the mountain, the place where the Old Testament greats went to speak with God. And indeed, those Old Testament greats, Moses and Elijah, are doing just that, aren't they? God is the one talking to them. But instead of hiding their faces in the cleft of a rock or behind their cloak this time, they stare him in the face. They look on his glorified, transfigured face. And so do the disciples. And you understand by reading this, so do we. We get the opportunity to witness this glimpse of Jesus in his heavenly glory. And don't let the significance of this pass you by unappreciated. I would beg you. Jesus was not just another man walking around on this earth with just some wise sayings for us. He wasn't even the ubermensch. He wasn't even the pinnacle of mere humanity. He was more than that. He was divine. So when we see him gloriously transfigured here, we should be filled with hope. Why hope? Well, you understand that for Jesus, a mere man, to be also divine means that there has been an inbreaking of this transcendent supernatural realm into the material. That is to say, all that there is is not the material. There is more than that. And that is reason for hope. This world is not all that there is. There's something transcendent and ultimate and above the things that we see and feel and experience. Or more accurately, there is someone transcendent. And we see him here glorified as the one who has spent eternity in the presence of the triune God. Toward the end of his life, one of these disciples, Peter, wrote to the church of his desire to see Christians grow in their spiritual maturity. We know the letter as Second Peter. And in it, he traces out this clear progression of sanctification from that foundational faith, which makes you a Christian in the first place, to the pinnacle of Christian charity and love. Now, the logic behind his exhortation to move from that starting point to that end place or that progress of sanctification, the the motivation for that exhortation is quite interesting. You see, in Peter's mind, behind the moral imperatives, behind the do this and don't do that of the Christian life, is the spirituality of Christ's glory. It's Christ's glory. That's our motive. So when he really wants to impress upon his readers the importance of living this virtuous life of love as Christians. He writes this in 2 Peter 1, 16-18. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him, By the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Do you understand what Peter is saying? He's saying that the reason we bother living like Christians at all is because of what we see here on the Mount of Transfiguration. We strive to live like Christians because we have seen the glory of Christ, albeit in writing. Peter directs our attention to that all-important proclamation made by God the Father. And so in our second point, we'll turn to consider that now. The authority of Jesus Christ is our second point. The authority of Jesus. 
So the disciples, they wake up from this heavy sleep and they see this incredible sight. The gospel authors don't explain how, but somehow they immediately recognize Moses and Elijah and they see the transfigured Jesus conversing with them. And then Peter says, where are my manners? And he has this bright idea. Look at verses five and six. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Now, there is a lot, and I mean a lot of disagreement amongst the commentators who've written on this passage uh, regarding what in the world Peter is thinking when he makes this suggestion. The only explanation given in the text is that he was confused, but that doesn't really tell us what he means by it or uh, why he's then interrupted immediately by this cloud and by the voice of God. Certainly it's possible that he just woke up from a heavy sleep and he's totally disoriented and he just starts blabbering some nonsense. That's certainly an option, but I think it's also possible and even likely that there's more going on here in this proposal. There are two other main options that the commentators' opinions fall into. Uh, One is that Peter, for one reason or another, he just wants Moses and Elijah and Jesus to hang out there for a while. Uh, Luke does mention that uh, they had just woken up and they saw that Moses and Elijah were getting ready to leave. And so maybe he says, wait, 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 we want to spend more time with you. It's possible. Uh, Some, though, have suggested something a bit more complicated, which is uh, that he wants to celebrate the Feast of Booths. It's true that uh, the word for tents here, skenos, is uh, also used in the Greek Old Testament when it's describing these booths or these little tents that the people are supposed to set up for this great feast every year. Now, interestingly, the uh, reappearance of Elijah, which the people were supposed to be looking forward to because of what's said in Malachi 4, uh, which is that Elijah is going to reappear before the Messiah comes and brings fulfillment and consummation to the new kingdom, right? Elijah was supposed to come, and his coming was going to be associated with this time of redemptive histories being fulfilled and the judgment of the Lord, And some Jewish writings even uh, attested that there was uh, this common idea amongst the Jews that Moses would accompany Elijah when he returned. Uh, So the Feast of Tabernacles, meanwhile, was celebrated yearly at the time of harvest, and it was supposed to remind the people uh, of their wilderness wanderings and of the great bounty which they now had in the promised land. Now, how is that associated with Elijah in any way? Well, the people of Israel in this second temple uh, era, which is the religious era that the disciples were alive in, they had come to expect some sort of fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles, and rightly so. I mean, it was a feast about uh, something that had happened in history, right? The people being delivered from Egypt and brought through the wilderness into the promised land. Well, they were expecting a spiritual realization of that, right? They were expecting them to be brought into this new covenant and for that new covenant to be fulfilled in the Messiah. And so in order for those things to happen, they realized Elijah would have to come first. So when they see Elijah uh, reappearing, their minds may very well have gone to, hold on, it's the fulfillment of the Feast of Booths, the new creation and the day of the Lord are here. And so maybe... Just maybe they decided that the appropriate response would be to institute the rites of the Feast of Booths, namely to build skenos or tents. After all, Jesus had just been telling them in verse 1 that the kingdom of God was coming so soon that some of them would still be alive. So that's one possible interpretation. Now finally and quickly, a third option, 
one that I think is maybe the best of them, although some mixture is also possible. Uh, A third option is that Peter has in mind uh, some sort of tabernacle set up, a worship set up. In this construction, Peter, he makes this valid observation that he's beholding a theophany, right? A, A physical manifestation of God himself. And his right impulse is to worship. But his proposal to build three tents in this case is a proposal to build a house of worship, a tabernacle or a temple. Now, where's the problem with that? Well, Moses and Elijah are not due worship. They're but men. As one commentator puts it, Simon's, that is, Peter's words divulge that in some sense he's lumping Jesus together with Moses and Elijah So though this is perhaps uh, Peter is closest to understanding here what's actually going on, right? He realizes who Jesus is. His mistake is also far more serious than in the other options. He's not just interrupting with a dumb idea. And he's not just got his eschatological timeline mixed up. He's essentially blaspheming. And that would make sense of why God the Father interposes immediately and distinguishes Jesus from the others, saying, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. He differentiates Jesus from the prophets, and he echoes Deuteronomy 18. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses is speaking of uh, this greater prophet, greater even than himself, who would come down the line and would prophesy, much as Moses had, but in some greater way. And he says what? When that prophet comes, listen to him. Peter then has made this understandable but totally inexcusable mistake of someone who's beheld a heavenly presence, right? Moses and Elijah themselves, as we learn in Matthew, were radiating glory. He's made this understandable but inexcusable mistake of beholding a heavenly glorified presence and its terrifying splendor, and he's tried to worship it. But when that thick cloud appears and the voice from heaven declares that this isn't just another prophet, he must have realized very quickly that this was a bad idea. You see, the glory of Moses and Elijah, it's a derivative glory. In other words, they are not its origin. They shine because they have been in the presence of light. But for Jesus, he is the source of his own glory. He shines because he is light. So Peter can later reflect on what he saw and heard as a great proclamation of Jesus' receiving power and glory in 2 Peter 1.17. This is a first taste, in other words, of what would be given to Jesus after the suffering of the cross and the glory of his resurrection when all would be given to him, all authority in heaven and on earth, as we read at the end of Matthew. This vision of Christ transfigured is the foundation then for the Christian's call to sanctification and to being more like Christ. Why? Well, it's because it means that the one whom we imitate is also the one whom we serve. You see, the pursuit of the ubermensch ideal is optional. If you feel like sitting around on the couch all day, that's fine. You don't have to become the ubermensch, right? The pursuit of our heroes or of their qualities is optional, Why? We don't serve those people, but we do serve Jesus Christ. And so to pursue Christ-likeness is not an optional exercise for the Christian. It's important to note that our behavior must be patterned after his, and our hearts must be oriented toward the things that he loves, 
That's what it is to be a Christian. It's also important that we realize that this moment on the mountain was not, in fact, the consummation of the kingdom. It was not the pinnacle of Christ's glorification. It's a glimpse, but it's not the full reality yet. And that strange tension is what leaves the disciples confused as they walk back down the mountain. How could they have just seen what they saw, but without the final consummation of the kingdom being at hand? They're missing one very important element of Christ's work, which has yet to happen, and that is his suffering. So our third point is the suffering of Jesus. His suffering. Jesus and this inner ring of disciples are making their way down the mountain. He tells them not to tell anyone what they've seen. Until what? Verse 9. He says, until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Now, if the disciples weren't already confused enough, they're really confused because they just saw Elijah return. And that's supposed to signal the arrival of the end of time, the coming of the Messiah to deliver his people at last. And now Jesus, again, is talking about his death, implied by his resurrection. And they just don't understand. How can that still take place? When Elijah has just returned, how can the eschaton, the judgment day, be here if the Son of Man that great ruler of Daniel 7 who's given power over all creation if the Son of Man is about to die, if Jesus reigns, in other words, how can there still be such suffering? And so we find the disciples asking a very familiar question. Which of us in a time of grief or pain or struggle hasn't wondered how such a thing could come to pass if indeed Jesus were on his throne Think of your darkest hours. Oftentimes, I know, we try, and for good reason, to put those times out of our minds and just move on with our lives. But if you would, think for a moment of those painful experiences which form blurry spots in your memory, shadowy corners of your past. Is it not hard to reconcile those experiences with the reality of a glorified Christ sitting on his throne in heaven and ruling actually being in charge. I know it's probably not necessary to give anyone an example of suffering. We've all had those times ourselves. Uh, but when I think of suffering, I cannot help but think of uh, the great tragedy at the Welsh mining town of Aberfan in 1966. Uh, the miners had dug the earth out of the ground for years and years, and they piled that earth up on the side of a mountain in uh, what was called a coal tip. And eventually, uh, due to some uh, negligence, a massive landslide occurred as the entire coal tip turned into a mudslide and crashed into the town of Aberfan, this little village. Now, tragically, the building which bore the brunt of the mudslide was the elementary school. It was struck just as teachers were taking attendance for the day, and 116 students from this little town lost their lives along with 28 others. Just imagine the suffering and the grief and the pain. Your entire world, everyone you know, has lost a child. And these are the sorts of things that can make us truly struggle to reconcile the doctrine of Christ's reign on the one hand with the reality which stares us in the face. It's this sort of tragedy and evil and suffering which makes people look at Christians and say, you fools, 
You guys are delusional. Clearly, clearly, there is no benevolent and transcendent power who orchestrates this kind of thing. All there is is to live and to die and to suffer as little as possible in the process. But that view disregards the very nature of Jesus' own words. The Father tells us, listen to him, and yet we could so easily overlook the next thing in quotation marks. Jesus says, is it not written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? You see, just as death is the necessary prerequisite to resurrection, suffering is the necessary prerequisite to glory. The way to glory with King Jesus, in other words, is through suffering. That's how we get there. As a matter of fact, the only context in which suffering really makes any sense is one in which Jesus reigns. See, if he doesn't reign, then there is no purpose to our suffering. What's the point of suffering if there is nothing beyond this world? Nobody can completely escape the suffering, right? No matter how wealthy you are, no matter how much you recluse yourself from society, nobody can escape it altogether. So why bother enduring? What's the point No, Christians, we have a better reason than anyone to accept the reality of suffering in this world. Why? Because we can see past the suffering to a glorified Christ who waits to receive us, even as he received Moses and Elijah. As the surviving citizens of Aberfan uh, gathered around the mass grave on the outskirts of their town, they, of course, wept and clung to each other, but they also sang Wales was one of the hotbeds of the first great awakening, and so they joined their faltering voices in one of the great Wesley hymns, Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly, they sang. While the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high, hide me, Savior, Uh, hide me, O my Savior, hide, till the storm of life is past, safe into the haven guide. Oh, receive my soul at last. Those are the kinds of words, you see, with which a Christian can suffer. Instead of resenting, he clings to Christ and to the assurance that Jesus is in control. As a Christian, you confess that Jesus reigns. You know he does. The only things that make you doubt it are the sufferings of this world, the pain you experience, the temptations you face, the constant protest of the world to the contrary. So here, this exhortation that Peter gives at the end of his second epistle. He says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, by looking upon Jesus Christ and his suffering, we gain the perspective that's necessary to see past the hopeless cynicism of this world. Though sufferings certainly continue, we have the assurance that in Christ they lead only to glory. And perhaps the greatest lesson of the Transfiguration story in closing then is that Jesus' journey on this earth did not end on that mountain. As he explains to the disciples during their descent, the Son of Man was not yet ready to be glorified as they thought he had been. Much suffering would lie between the mount and the cross. 
It's precisely because this suffering hadn't yet been completed that Peter's words would come to look so foolish in retrospect. I love what the ancient theologian Jerome says in commenting on it. He says, Oh, Peter, oh, Peter, even though you have ascended the mountain, even though you see Jesus transfigured, even though his garments are white, nevertheless, because Christ has not suffered for you yet, you are still unable to know the truth. What does Jerome mean? He means that for Peter to propose that they build tents and camp out there would have been to interpose his own idea into the perfect plan of God, which was about to enter its final stages as Jesus would set his face, Luke tells us, to go to Jerusalem where he would be crucified. Peter tried, albeit probably with good intentions, he tried to distract Jesus from the mission that would save Peter's own life. For Peter to see this glimpse of God's, of Jesus' glory was not enough. Jesus still had to suffer. The glory of the Mount of Transfiguration, after all, was never meant to be the end point of his ministry. It was a glimpse of his glory, given in anticipation of the immense pain and suffering which was coming, and through which that glory would be won ultimately. And so I echo Jerome, and I say, O Christian, Though you have read about Jesus' glory, and though you've heard the Father's pronouncement of his authority, and though you've confessed with your lips that Jesus is Lord, that's not enough. You need to suffer with him. You need to suffer for him. That's the essence of the Christian life, you understand. You need to put to death the flesh in order to be more like him. Suffering, you see, is a Christian calling because it was Christ's calling, and we are obliged to imitate him. It pains me every time I hear of someone who abandons the faith because they simply cannot reconcile the suffering they see with the idea that Jesus is a loving Lord of all creation. What they don't realize, and the reason it pains me so much, is because they are actually running away from the one thing that makes the suffering bearable. If you think suffering with Jesus is hard, in other words, try suffering without him. If you think suffering for Jesus is hard, try suffering for no reason at all. Christians, we have a hope which validates and dignifies our pain. Jesus is coming back in glory, and his righteous authority will be manifest. How? In a profound peace and joy and painlessness as he wipes away every tear of his beloved followers. And he speaks words of comfort to his people, and he brings to an end the strife which surrounds us. So if you're a Christian, then that is your hope. I would urge you not to trade it for anything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is to you and to your glory that we look in dark times. We pray that we would not grow complacent when the times are not dark, And that we would instead strive to be like Christ, who suffered many things for the glory which awaited him. In your son's name we pray. Amen.